The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 23, 1-12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Ty. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Christ Pres. If this is uh, your first time here, and if you've been here 150 times, uh, welcome to you too. Uh, glad to be with you uh, under a roof on a day like this. Um, I want to start uh, this way. Among the last words that Jesus left us with were these words. We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching people to obey everything I've commanded baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, with that command comes two imperatives. Number one, uh, help people mature. Number two, convert people. You know, the, the word baptizing means help people become Christians. Help people become followers of Jesus. And if you go to the book of Acts, you'll see that the disciples... Uh, were vigorous in their attempt to follow these directives from Jesus. There was a boldness about them. There was an urgency about them to to invite people into the kingdom. Uh, And they were about proclamation and service and healing and serving. And um, 11 out of the 12 of them gave their lives as martyrs for the cause. They were so committed. Now, a recent Barner report... Uh, came out uh, indicating that specifically in the Western Hemisphere, uh, an increasing number of Christians are backing off from the boldness and the urgency of the people in the book of Acts. And uh, on the one hand, in the same survey, the question was asked, what is the best thing that could happen to a human being? And 97% of Christians responded, being in relationship with Jesus Christ. The best thing that can happen to a human being, 97% of Christians said, being in relationship with Jesus Christ. In the same survey, 50% of millennials, 25% of my generation, Generation X, and 20% of baby boomers said it is wrong to share your beliefs about Christ with people for the purpose of converting them to Christianity. So, on the one hand, the best thing that that, that can happen to a person is to come into a relationship with Christ. The worst thing that you can possibly do is try to persuade somebody to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are 
all kinds of possible factors for this shift, but I, I think really the main factor is that Christianity, uh, for good or for ill, for, for, for legitimate reasons or not, has a black eye uh, in, in the eye of Western culture. A lot of contributing factors. One would be um, one would be the flaws and the sins of prominent Christian leaders, abuse scandals, uh, immorality, things of that sort. It seems like every two to three weeks there's another big, you know, celebrity Christian who has crashed and burned, and it, it goes on the national scale, and it's discrediting. The second reason, perhaps, is uh, the conflation uh, in the West uh, of Christianity and partisan politics among those who identify as Christians. For older generations, it tends to be the conflation of, of right-leaning politics with their Christianity, as if the two are one and the same. And for younger generations, it tends to be the conflation of Christianity with blue state or left-leaning politics, as if the two were the same. And there's a whole generation, especially in this political climate, actually three generations, that are disenchanted with, with having an association with anything political, right? And, and, and because Christianity has been so connected both on the right and the left, with partisan politics, people are like, I, I don't want to go there. It's like smacking a hornet's nest. And then the third would be the perception of a Christian posture that lacks humility. You, know, you ask the average non-Christian person in the West, again, for good or for ill, right or wrong, the, the, if you ask the question, how would you describe a Christian? What do you think Christianity is about? And the answer would be a version of this. It's about being right acting superior in your rightness, and hurting people. So Philip Yancey, who's a, a well-known Christian author, he, he does a lot of traveling and speaking, and one of the things he likes to do on a regular basis is engage strangers in conversation just to get a gauge on what people are thinking about Christianity in the West. And he asks the question, um, you know, are you religious? No. Okay, next question. What do you think of Christians in particular? And he says that, that by and large, the answer that he gets from almost everybody is some version of narrow-minded and judgmental. Have to be right about everything. Now, being right is a really good thing. It's good to be right. Jesus was right about everything. Jesus was never wrong about anything. But there's this, there's this very discernible difference between how people experienced Jesus and how people experienced, as Jesus says, those who sat in Moses' seat, the, the, the teachers of Scripture, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes are the interpreters, the Pharisees are the ethicists. The, the, the scribes are the ones who say this is what Scripture means, and the Pharisees were the ones who say this is how we should live on the basis of what Scripture says and means. And when people engaged with Jesus around subjects in the Scriptures, they always seem to be leaving feeling less burdened rather than more. Whereas when people engage with the scribes and Pharisees, they always seem to be leaving more burdened instead of less. And so there's a disconnect here that, that, that Jesus is, is addressing. The scribes and Pharisees hurt people with their sense of rightness, the lines of separation that they would constantly be, being, be drawing between the presumed you know, good people and bad people in the world, while Christianity has no such lines. Christianity separates the world between the proud and the humble, between the selfish and the servant, not between the good and the bad. You know, Jesus never, we never find him belittling 
people that, that tend to get belittled by the scribes and the Pharisees, young children, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, uneducated people, uh, ethnic minorities, Gentiles, uh, Greeks, lepers, crooks, misfits. W whenever they'd been with Jesus, it seems like they, they leave feeling like a million bucks, and yet when, when they leave the company of the scribes and the Pharisees, they leave feeling worthless, disrespected, despised, rejected, lesser than, um, not in the in club. And so, so what I want to do is, is, is camp out on three dynamics that, 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 that Jesus points to here, uh, and hopefully we all fit in the third category. But the first two categories are, are the, the categories of warning, to, to check our hearts, check our motives, uh, check our behaviors, uh, to ensure that we're not culpable of religious pride on the one hand, non-religious pride on the other, uh, where we want to fall is into humble servanthood. So, so let's talk first about religious pride. This is, this is the hallmark of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 2, they, they sit on Moses' seat. They're, they're the teachers of the Torah. This is all the Bible they had at that time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. Moses' seat was, was the place where people would sit, to teach that stuff, to help make sense of it for the people. What's wrong with that? If, if that's your profession as a scribe, as a Pharisee, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is the mishandling of the intent of all of Scripture. And Jesus targets first the motivations. And he says in verse 5, the scribes and Pharisees do all of their deeds. There's no mixing of motives there. They do all of their deeds for one reason, he says, to be seen, to be applauded. They flaunt their faith. They, they seek the best seats at banquets. They, they, they have to get the, the invitation to table one, two, or three at, at, at a banquet, and, and, and they feel offended or, or, or snubbed or, or hurt if they get invited and seated at table 23 instead of table one, two, two or three. They want the best seats. They also want the best seats at the synagogue, what they're after, Jesus says, is VIP treatment. They're not after God. God is a means to the end of getting VIP treatment with things like public recognition and titles like rabbi and teacher. You know, Eugene Peterson said that their whole life was like a perpetual fashion show where religion was their clothing, where the world was their audience, and where God was their stagehand and their supporting actor. How do you know that, that, that you're falling into this? You know better than I do whether or not you're falling into this. A lot of it is secret stuff that goes on in the heart, and you can have people whose behavior looks virtually identical, but have two very different dynamics going on in the heart. I am falling into scribeness and Phariseeness, if I start to enjoy the sound of my own name more than I enjoy the sound of Jesus' name, and if I am more zealous for my reputation than I am for Jesus' reputation. So those are a couple of diagnostics I can ask myself. But then here are some symptoms that will come out of me that you might be able to observe if it comes out of me. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humble. It's not hard to detect a prideful person. It's not hard to detect a self-exalting person, and, and, and it happens in a couple of ways. You can exalt yourself over God instead of loving God. You can exalt yourself over your neighbor instead of loving your neighbor. 
So we exalt ourselves over God in this way. I have lived a good life. I have kept the rules. I have kept my nose clean. I've stayed on the, state, the, 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 the straight and narrow. And therefore, God owes me something. He is indebted to me in some way, shape, or form. I actually experienced some of this this morning. I wake up, as I do every Sunday, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I look outside, and I'm like, again? It's raining. It's cold. It's nasty out there. And I am the only one in the world up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to work hard to give my best message. I'm going to preach twice at Old Hickory. Then I'm going to travel over to Music Row and then come back here, do it again. I'm doing all of this, and this is the weather you get me. Nobody's going to show up. And, I'm, and so I'm, I'm angry at God, but I'm also angry at you. And, and lo and behold, both of you have showed up today in spite of me. But it's there in our hearts. It's the rich ruler stuff. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How must I behave in order to get a kickback from you? It's very subtle, but it's there. And we know it's there when we start to get mad when God does not give us the life that we think we ought to have. We know it's there when when we start thinking, God cannot write the story of my life like I can write the story of my life. Tragic picture of that is the Salieri character in the movie Amadeus. So Mozart shows up on the scene in Amadeus, and he's a drunk, he's a womanizer, he's obscene, he's insulting, he's rude. He writes some of his best music while under the influence of, of whiskey. And he's world-class, world-class. And Salieri gets up early, stays up late, works hard, pours everything he's got into his craft, and he's mediocre. And so he tries to make a bargain with God, and he says, look, God, you give me fame, and I'll give all the glory to you hear how contradictory those two statements are? You give me fame, and then give me fame, and then you get the glory. You know, the Pharisees are like, you know, you give us Moses' seat, and, 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 and Salieri is like, you give me Mozart's seat, and then I will give you the glory. And God says, no. And so Salieri has it out with God, and he says this, from now on, God, we are enemies, you and I, Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and you give me only the ability to recognize that incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth. As far as I'm able, I will ruin your incarnation, that is Mozart. And yet, the only person that Salieri hinders and harms is himself. The only person that Salieri ruins is himself. This is how scribeness and Phariseeness plays out. When when your virtue, your presumed virtue, does not pay the dividends that you suppose it ought to, when you start to feel like God has stolen something from you, it could be something as simple as a sunny day or a career path that you came to Nashville for and gave up everything in order to make it happen. You are not entitled. That's the message. 
And that's what's tripping the scribes and the Pharisees up. But they don't just lord it over God and exalt themselves over God. They do it over their neighbor too. He says in verse 4, the scribes and Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders and they offer no help. You know, again, to, to be with Jesus was to, to be unburdened in some way. To be with Jesus around the Scriptures was to be unburdened by virtue of the way he unpacked it. To be with the scribes and Pharisees around the Scriptures was to, to leave with a heavier burden on your back. It goes like this. Say somebody comes in with a crisis pregnancy, and you know, the universal belief of, of, of those who embrace the scriptures who read at face value books like Jeremiah and, you know, Psalm 139, you know, before you, you know, form me in the womb, I set you apart. Uh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, you see in the New Testament, John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb. Okay, person, human, dignity, image bearer, the moment that, that sperm and egg unite. Okay. So the scribes and Pharisees are going to say to a woman in a crisis pregnancy, over half of whom live below the poverty level, here's the law, you're on your own. Here's the law, you're on your own. A community that's behind Jesus, on the other hand, much like this community, thanks be to God, a community that's behind Jesus will say, here's the truth. Now, how can we come around you? and provide you the support, the resourcing, the emotional care, the, the rest, the, 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 the burden lifting that you need in order to be faithful in the predicament in which you found yourself? How can we help not only Christian women in crisis, but non-Christian women in crisis start to think it's the church, not the clinic, where I can go for sanctuary? where I can go for protection and healing and understanding and non-judgmentalism. You know, let's take, make it illegal to the next level. Make it also unthinkable because of the love and support that's there for anyone. Love what the Christian church is doing worldwide in the realm of crisis pregnancy, adoption, foster care, etc. More, more unburden the burden. Or the gay man who came into my office a few months ago and said, I believe, first of all, I've got a partner. Second of all, I believe every word that the Scripture says, and I take it all at face value. I believe everything Jesus said. I believe that sex is only for marriage and that marriage is only for one man and one woman. But I am in a rich ruler quandary because I feel like I'm, I'm caught between two impossible scenarios. You know, one is to live unfaithfully to Jesus and, and, and carry the shame of that. And the other is to live faithfully to Jesus and live alone. Because the church worships the nuclear family more than it worships Jesus. And I'm left on the outside as a result. See? Like the scribes and the Pharisees, they say, this is the law around sexuality and around marriage. You're on your own. Good luck with that. Now, we'll, we'll let you know if we're upset with the way that you're handling the law. And we'll give you all the proper discipline and everything else. And we'll just leave you alone if you keep it. We'll regard you as a little bit of a freak because of the attractions that you have. 
See, but the Christian church says, all right, this is what God says about sex and marriage. What is it about us that makes church one of the loneliest places in the world for a single person? For a widow, not just a same-sex attraction, an opposite-sex attracted person who has wanted, wanted to be married for 15 years and just never had the chance, or a widow or a widower, what makes it such that the American Christian church is seen and experienced from those people's perspective as the loneliest place in the world? We've got some, some work to do. Again, some great work is being done. But more, more, more. The gospel unburdens people. It doesn't add to burdens. And following Christ is hard. Just like Augustine said, when, when, when God commands, he also gives what he commands. And we are part of that mission of God to dispense, to teach everything that he has taught to be obeyed and to, and to provide whatever is needed for the support system around it. Or a crisis marriage. Now, you know what Malachi and Jesus in Matthew 19 say about divorce. It's pretty, pretty direct. Pharisee and scribe says, here's the law. Good luck with that. We'll come after you if we're disappointed in the way that you're handling the law. And we'll pull out the church discipline card. Now, I'm not against church discipline. I'm all for it. That's something we do here. But the Christian community will say, how can we come around you and help you walk that painful, difficult, and yet virtuous, lovely, beautiful walk of forgiveness and humbling yourself and apologizing for the injuries that you've inflicted on this other person? How can we come around you? What counselors do you need? What pastoring do you need? What community do you need around you to make this work? Seven marriages were saved in our church last year. Seven. That's staggering, but it takes work. It takes more than thus saith the Lord. It takes more than a prophet. It takes a priest to hug you through it and to show up. Religious pride, poison, poison. I'd rather follow an atheist. Non-religious pride is the next thing, and he only hints at this. But he says, verse 3, wherever their teaching is biblical, wherever you can find truth in their teaching, observe whatever they say. You know, it reminds me of, of our first child. When, when Abby was born, Patty went through 36 hours of labor. It was pretty brutal. And the, 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 the doctor had the worst bedside manner of anybody I've ever witnessed completely rude, insulting, offended that he got called in. I wanted to slap him, but I realized if I slap him, then who's going to deliver the baby? And, and so, thankfully, there's a nurse right next to Patty, by her side the whole time. The nurse is appropriately, her name is Grace. And Grace said two things. Number one, we both know he's a jerk. Just ignore his jerkiness. Look to me for compassion and love. He knows what he's doing. So listen to the truth, obey the truth, and look to me for love. But wouldn't it be great to put all those together in one? That's where we get Jesus. 
That where, that's where we get a church and a community that's following behind Jesus. Grace and truth together. Law and love together. Flexing the muscles of conviction and compassion simultaneously on all things. These are the terms if you want to follow Jesus. You have to be all in with him. The whole Christ, the whole scripture for your whole life. And that's going to be someday it's going to be two steps forward, one step back. Someday it's going to be three steps forward and five steps back, but, but, but along the way, in community, under Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we will become progressively and increasingly, we and individuals, more like Christ. Those are the terms. Jesus is a great physician. He doesn't pull out a sword with his kids. He pulls out a scalpel and he cuts you, and sometimes you're going to interpret that as bad bedside. Maybe the Pharisees felt that way about Jesus. This is bad bedside, oh great physician. You speaking so directly to us. He insists that we observe whatever is good and right and true, regardless of who delivers it. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians. Some preach Jesus Christ out of completely wrong motives. And I rejoice because they're preaching Christ. Don't shoot the message because of the messenger. And yet in our day and age and in our time, we have what you call expressive individualism. This is the pendulum swing away from Pharisaism to an opposite form of self-righteousness and fundamentalism. It's just the fundamentals change. A fundamentalist insists I'm right and has contempt for anybody who disagrees with my rightness. Okay? On the right, we've seen it in the religious realm. In the irreligious realm, if you do not agree with me about how immoral it is to make moral judgments, then I will punish you, and I will exclude you in the name of tolerance. So sociologist Robert Bella and Catholic philosopher um, Charles Taylor have popularized this notion of expressive individualism in the West, and the definition is this. It is belief that an individual's highest loyalty should be to one's self. True happiness is obtained by expression and the realization of one's core identity, which includes one's deepest desires, thoughts, and beliefs. The the slogans are, be true to yourself, follow your own heart, live your truth. But there's still this thing called Moses' seat or Scripture that, that reminds us that life in Christ is not ultimately about expressing to the world who we feel we are and ought to be on the inside. It's about being formed from the outside by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, by life and community with people who are chasing after Jesus. It's about formation, not about expression. And the only healthy expression is that which comes after the formation got to keep the horse in front of the cart there. So the conservative, expressive individual will say, love God even at the expense of neighbor. Be about the Bible. Go to church. Believe all the right things. The scripture is inerrant, infallible. Uh, that, that, that Christianity, there's an exclusive nature to it. That, that the only way that somebody can come into a right relationship with God is through Jesus. You have to believe in the existence of a place called hell because Jesus talks so much about it. You have to believe in the reality of sin. You have to believe in the re- reality of the substitutionary atonement that Christ died for us. And, and there's no way that we have hope without his death being applied to us. Like you have to believe all those things, and that's true. But the conservative uh, 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 
um, uh, expressive individualist is also going to say, social problems, not my problem. I didn't own any slaves. This whole systemic race thing, this whole conversation about privilege, it just offends me. It just hurts my feelings. It's not my problem. I'm just trying to do my job. I have black friends. Okay. But then you go the other direction. Liberal expressive individualism says, love your neighbor even at the expense of God. We're the activists. We're the ones that are going to tackle the social problems. We're going to start the hashtag movements. We're going to get angry. In the name of tolerance and love, we're going to get so angry. But all this old-fashioned stuff like doctrine and atonement and sin and yeah. It's both and or it's nothing. It's law and love. It's truth and justice. And beauty and grace. You know, to say that it's wrong to make moral judgments is a moral judgment. To say that it is wrong to try to convert people to your belief system is an attempt to convert people to your belief system. It's a self-defeating statement. That leaves us with humble servanthood. You know, Jesus says, receive what Scripture says and then pour out your life for God and neighbor, flexing the muscles of conviction and compassion, both of which have been given generously to you from the seed of Jesus who ultimately sits on the seed of Moses. Stop chasing titles. If you want to be great, get low. The greatest in the kingdom are the ones who serve. The greatest in the kingdom are the ones who are humble, not the ones who exalt themselves. And then fall in love with the woes of Jesus. What? I think this, this passage is one of the most misread passages in Scripture because we look at it as, a, as an angry, aggressive scold. Every time the word, virtually every time the word woe is used in Scripture, it's with tears. It's with compassion. It's like Jonathan Edwards who gets a bad rap for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He, he read that sermon while weeping. Jesus, no doubt, preached with tears and with grief and with sorrow and with sadness here. He repeats their name over and over and over again. Scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, much like David did with his straying son, Absalom, Absalom. Or Jesus with, with, with misdirected Martha, Martha, Martha. Or Jesus at the end of Matthew 23, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks, but you were not willing. Tender bedside, even with jerks. Tender bedside. You know, there's this uh, story in Switch. It's a book by Chip and Dan Heath. It's about Tom Watson, who was the CEO of IBM in the 1950s and 1960s. And there was an executive on his team who made a really bad business decision and lost $10 million for the company. $10 million was a lot of money in the 1950s and 1960s. And the, the business executive came into Watson's office and offered his resignation preemptively and said, I suppose that you're planning to fire me. I'll just beat you to it. Here's my resignation. I'm very sorry. Watson turned back to him and said, fire you? I've just invested $10 million in you. Get back to work. I can't afford to fire you. 
And John Ortberg has a great insight about this. He says, do you realize this is just what Je- this is precisely what Jesus did with Peter? Peter was ready to resign, you know, walking around with his tail underneath his legs, the walk of shame. And for every betrayal, Jesus restores him with a gesture of love. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Love you too. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Love you too. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Love you too. You know how I love you? I've got a job for you to do. I'm not in the firing business. I'm in the resurrection and renewal and restoration business for people who squander what I give to them. It's cost me a lot more than $10 million to hold on to you and to put you to work, so get to work. Now, if that's what a boss does for us after we blow it, anyone among us who is sane is going to say, I love and respect you so much. I want to follow you wherever you lead. I am in. What is the alternative to that? Humble servanthood. That's the antidote. Fall in love with the woes of Christ. Fall in love with the way that Christ repeats your name with affection, not with scorn. By the way that Jesus around the scriptures unburdens you instead of adding to your burden. Let's pray together. Dear sir, Lord Jesus Christ, we love and respect you so much. You have come to us full of grace and truth, full of law and love, full of compassion and conviction. You are always right, but you are never belittling. You are always opening your arms and your heart to sinners and also to scribes and to Pharisees. And now you open your table to us. What an amazing thing. Thank you, sir. Amen.